0: Father, we are so grateful for um, your word and for its ability to cut into our hearts in areas and ways that we need it. And this text is no different um, than so many others. It's hard, it's difficult, and yet it's really helpful. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would get us underneath this important passage, that you'd make us submissive to it. I pray, Father, for people who grew up in judgmental homes who now who, who said that they would never be like what their home was like and, and there's these remnants of judgmentalism that are there and I pray that you today would help them see how to get out of that. And I pray for others, Lord, who have no clue how their outward demeanor is so condemning to other people. And I pray that you would help them to see the need to take careful inventory of their own heart first. So Lord, this text is so critical for critical people. And I pray that you would meet us here, that you Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus wants a religion that is real. And as he looked at his culture... And the formalized religion of his day, he was appalled. Because what had happened in Jesus' day happens often when religion becomes formalized and belief in God becomes part of your culture, is that the people and their heart began to drift from the real intentions of what God had in mind when he talked about coming and worshiping himself. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says some pretty different things. Things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, what had happened is that religion had lost its way. And Jesus aims to bring it back from the brink. He wants people to get real. To get real with their God, to get real with one another, and to get back to what real religion is all about. And so he aims, not for the external only, he aims for the internal. He aims for an entirely different level. Jesus aims for the heart. And that's why he says that murder is not the only problem, anger is. That's why he says adultery is not the only problem, a lustful look is a problem too. See, what Jesus is arguing for is that real righteousness is not just about actions. It's not just about what you do. That real righteousness is about motive. It's about heart. It's about the inside. That religious people should beware lest they practice their righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about giving and prayer and fasting and goals. And all of these things, they should be performed, but they should be done for the right reasons. Or your spiritual practice of them will be worthless and potentially idolatrous. Yes, you can use religion to worship yourself. And what Jesus wants is a righteousness that is genuine. He wants Religion to be real. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is about this subject of real religion and what it means to really be genuine. Last June, we started this section that we've called Get Real. And so far to date, we've looked at the following. We've seen the ethics of grace in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. We saw sins of the heart, these Sins that relate to motive and, and heart condition like anger and lust and oath taking and retaliation. And then we saw that motives matter. That regards to prayer and fasting and regards to giving and how you run your life, that what you are in the inside and what you're seeking, that's the thing that really matters. Now chapter seven, where we are today, is the final lap in our study in this sermon. The greatest of all of Jesus' sermon. And the final three things that we're going to look at are these. This morning we're going to look at the subject of judging and a call to not judge. The next week to the idea of that we're to expect good things from God. That it's the Father's desire to give us the kingdom, so ask Him. And then in the final message, which I hope to be the signature message in this entire series, which will include at the end a call For some of you who have walked all the way through this summer and through this series and yet are truly not regenerate, to decide who really is the Lord of your life, a message called Only a Few Are Truly Saved. So, our text this morning covers the important subject of judging. And the reason why this is important, this text, is because this is probably second only to John 3.16, one of the most frequently quoted verses by people who are outside of the church. In fact, in my experience as a pastor, the people in our culture know this verse and they love to quote it, especially to pastors or preachers or Christians when you have the audacity to suggest that something is wrong or sinful or out of design of God's original plan for the created world. And people love to be able to quote this verse with a little snarl on their tongue and a purse in their lips to say, don't judge lest you be judged. And a headwagged boot. I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. Don't judge lest you be judged. But the verse is also important for another reason. And that is that people outside of the church use that verse candidly for good reason. And that is that there are many within the church who are guilty of a sinful judgmentalism. I mean, let's be honest. It's religious people who are often guilty of nasty tones. Condescending looks, condemning words. So, this issue is important for at least two reasons. It's important because it's a frequently quoted verse outside of the church, and it's also a verse that we need to hear inside the church because judgmentalism is a problem. So, to address this touchy subject, Jesus uses a familiar teaching formula, and it goes like this command then warning, then solution. And that's going to be our outline this morning. Command, warning, solution. What's the command? What's the warning? And what does he suggest is the solution? So first, the command. He gives a cautious command. And the command is this, to judge judgingly. To judge carefully. I take this from verse 1 and also from verse 6. We're going to combine them. Jesus' command is pretty simple and straightforward. Look at it in chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge. And it seems as though what's happening here is that Jesus intends for his disciples to either stop judging as if they've already started doing it. That's one possible meaning. Or it could also be that he wants them to avoid some kind of judgmentalism in the future as though he wants to help prevent them from becoming something that they really shouldn't be. And I think what's happening is Jesus is warning his disciples about becoming like the religious leaders of the day who were really guilty of judgmentalism. So what exactly is Jesus addressing here in this judging thing? Well, the word judge means to separate, to choose, or to distinguish between. And sometimes the word is actually used in a very positive way, to judge between two things that need to be judged between. Or like a judge who sits on a bench has to render a verdict. So sometimes the word can have a very positive meaning. And in this context, however, the word has a meaning that relates to unfair, unloving, and condemning judgments. It's the kind of judgment that comes from an attitude of spiritual superiority and pride. And this judgmentalism expresses itself in making ultimate judgments about people in terms of who they are or what they will do. They're so, she always, I bet they will. And those sort of blanket statements express this spiritual superiority and this contempt that we have for other people. And the problem implicit in judging is that it fails to realize how limited we are as humans in our ability to see life and situations clearly. It is as though we think we know what we know and therefore we decide what we decide. And what judging fails to realize is that we are sinful human beings and our perceptions of reality is usually marred. Our perceptions of reality gets all bent by our own depravity. Our our human depravity, the, the very nature of who we are as human beings, causes us to see and hear things through a grid, through a lens, often informed by past hurts, by perceptions, by fears, by, by things that have happened to us. And therefore, we end up assigning motive, determining what someone is really doing, and Often we are way, way, way off base. So this issue of judging is one that's incredibly important and one that we need to wrestle with. Sinful judging is putting myself in God's place regarding the evaluation of others. There's a simple definition. It's putting myself in God's place regarding the evaluation of others, that I talk about people or treat them as if I know what's really going on, even though God is the only one who really knows the inner workings of the human heart. Dave Swavely, in his book, Who Are You to Judge?, gives this definition. To judge others is to decide that they are doing wrong because they do something the Bible doesn't talk about, or because you can guess what is in their heart. See, the problem is the guessing what's in the heart. There's a great example of this in the book of Luke. Take your Bible and go to Luke chapter 18, and let's look at verses 10 through 12, and then come back to verse 9. Luke chapter 18 What we're looking at here is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and to give you the summary of it, Jesus talks about these two men who go up to the temple to pray, and he shows the contrast between them, a Pharisee, a religious man, and a tax collector, a wicked sinner. We'll begin in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice here, church, that he begins by thanking God. So, in the context of worship, in the context of prayer, in the context of gratitude to God, his judgmentalism is seen. I thank you, God, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you... Imagine what God must think of this. He is expressing gratitude to God and his gratitude is implicitly filled with prideful, contemptuous judgmentalism. So you might wonder, what, how does somebody get like this? Well, look at verse nine. Jesus answers it. He also says, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. So implicit in the sin of judgmentalism, veiled under the context of worship and gratitude to God, is this understanding or this thought that I am righteous and therefore I treat others as though they're less than me. So sinful judgment has two sins involved, pride and contempt. Sinful judgment involves trying to play God by rendering final judgment on people as if we know the final verdict on their lives. Proverbs 21.2 is a great warning. I'm going to write that verse down. Proverbs 21.2 Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. What that verse says and what Jesus is talking about is that God alone knows the hearts of men and women. And what Jesus is addressing here is a proud heart that demonstrates and shows itself in a critical spirit with this rigid and penalizing judgmentalism. It's the kind of judgmentalism where you see the faults of others clearly, more clearly, and more easily than you see your own. It is to trust in yourself, to elevate your own sense of your accomplishment and then to treat others with contempt because they don't measure up to our high standards of where we sit. And listen, judgmentalism has many forms and I'm sure all of us are familiar with its wicked barbs that have been sent your way or perhaps I'm sure all of us in this room have been judgmental of someone in our lives. It it's, it's has many forms and it, it sounds way too familiar. It happens when we make assumptions about people, because of the past, or when we make blanket statements about who a person is. And some of you have a long list of why they are, why you think this person is the way that they are. A couple examples. He's never going to change. She's always been full of herself. Ever since I've known her, she's always been pompous. Well, I know why she did that. You don't need to wonder. I know why. So judgmentalism shows up in these assumptions. Judgmentalism is also at the heart of racism. Castigating a particular group of people. And saying all people are like this. White people are so blank. Black people are so blank. Hispanics are so blank. All Asians are blank. All Jews are... You get the point. Just choose your people group and then put in whatever you want in the blank. And that is the essence of judgmentalism. So undergirding racism is a spiritual problem of judgmentalism. And underneath that is the problem of pride and contempt. It's so subtle. In fact, it can just be a tone that can even just show up in the way that we ask questions. I mean, you don't even have to say judgmental words to be judgmental. Example. Was he late again? Did you see what Jane wore today? Can you believe they let their kids do that? In fact, you don't even have to use words. Somebody can say something to you, and you can be judgmental just by going, "Mm Mm-hmm. That's all you have to do. And you you don't have to say anything. You say, "Mm Mm-hmm. And that's sin right there. That's judgmental. Mm-hmm. That's it. So some people think, Okay, so Matthew 7-1 talks about don't judge lest you be judged. So... So therefore, we shouldn't judge about anything. What you need to understand is that the command about judging is not a retreat from absolute truth or the courage to call something or someone out for what they're doing if it's wrong. For example, I've had many people in the midst of pastoral ministry when I've said, look, what this person is doing is wrong and they they can't continue to be a member of our church and do this, I've had people actually quote this verse to me. A father once who was meeting with me when we were disciplining his son, and I was explaining why we couldn't allow his son to remain a a good standing member in our church. And and he said, well, how can you do that? Matthew seven one says, don't judge lest you be judged. And in his mind, that passage meant that the church could never identify right or wrong behavior. Is that what this text is saying? It, It can't be. Because the reality is the Bible calls us to make judgments. So we have to figure out how to make the right judgments. That's the key. So we're not called to not make any judgments as if there's no need for absolute truth. And please don't fall into this sort of mamby-pamby, weak-kneed Christianity where you just walk around, I don't judge anybody, I just love everyone. That's great, you keep loving and don't judge people sinfully, but the Bible calls you to stand for what's right and wrong and to do so in a way that honors Him and fulfills the heart of Matthew seven one. So what does that look like? Well, skip ahead to verse 6 and you'll see. Verse 6 is a strange verse. Do not give... Dogs, what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under a foot and turn to attack you. Strange that Jesus would say this. Remember earlier in our study in the Sermon of the Mount, I told you that Jesus often just makes statements and he just lets them go and doesn't give any kind of qualification as to why he says what he says, or he says something kind of radical and let you just kind of figure it out. Here's an exception to that. In this case, Jesus makes a radical statement in verse one: Don't judge. And then in verse 6 he says, but don't give what is holy to dogs. It's a rare qualification. And what is he advocating? Jesus is advocating for discernment. He ends his whole teaching on judgment with a word of caution. So on the one hand he says, don't be judgmental. On the other hand he says, don't be naive. On the one hand, don't be sinfully proud and contemptuous of other people. On the other hand, don't just simply take the beauty of the gospel and throw it to people who spitefully use it. He says, in effect, there comes a point in time when you as a believer have to decide, look, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried, and this person is just simply not receiving the gospel, so it's time for us to move on. To take the beauty of the gospel and just to throw it between at the feet of those who are just trampling underneath it would be to devalue the heart of what the gospel is. And so there is some time when believers are called to judge that it's time to move on. So Jesus calls for discernment just after warning about judgmentalism. It's a rare qualification. Because he doesn't want us to be naive or weak or relativistic the second thing is that the Bible commands us to judge in fact look at first Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 back to the story of that man when we were dealing with the discipline of his son after I explained to him our church's policy and not allowing a a person based on the scriptures say to remain in our church when they're being immoral after he quoted in Matthew chapter 7 That I led him to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read through this, and kind of a funny moment, after we read through this passage, he said, well, that's your verse. (laughs) I said, no, this is in the, this is in the Bible. And, And what was happening is, is it, is it was shattering this preconceived notion that he had that there was, that all judging was absolutely out of bounds. You could never say to somebody, your behavior is wrong. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says, so much the contrary. Look at what he says, Apostle Paul in verse 11. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So that that can't be any clearer. He calls the church to judge. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 5, look at what he says. Look at verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man to have his father's wife. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul says you're full of yourselves because you won't deal with this. You're, you're guilty of pride, so to not judge is to be guilty of pride. So I want you to know that those of you who are in the process of joining College Park Church, that we take seriously the state and the condition of your soul. And that means that you can't continue to walk in a life that's consistently out of line with what Paul just talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, guilty of gross, grievous sin that defames the name of Christ and be a member of College Park Church. And we will lovingly, biblically, slowly, and carefully walk you through a process to call you back to faith in christ but at the end of the day we do draw a line and say i'm sorry you can't be a wicked sinful person and be a member of this church you can't because that's what the bible calls us to do and that isn't sinful judging so what do we do what do we do we are called to judge judgingly so listen the problem is not with judging itself The problem, beloved, is with the attitude behind the judgment. That's the problem. So think of it like this. A road, and you've got a ditch on either side. On the left is the ditch of intoleration where we pridefully take God's place in evaluating people and who they are and what they're all about. And at at the ground level is this issue of pride and we are intolerant. So we're full of ourselves and we're contemptuous about other people. On the other side is the other ditch, which is equally filled with pride, where we are overly tolerant. We never tell people what's right or what's wrong. We don't deal with, with the substantive issues that the Scriptures call us to. And so on the one hand, you've got intolerance rooted in pride. On the other hand, you've got over-tolerance rooted in pride. So pride is at the root of both, and yet either express it differently. And so Jesus calls us to be discerning and to judge judgingly. So we have to be godly, but we have to not be godlike in our judgments of people. Now if you get this, there is this sense that you have in your heart of, oh Lord, help me. Because pride is on either side of the equation, and if you're not careful, you can fall into either ditch, judgmentalism or over-tolerance. On this side, you want people to like you so you don't tell them what's true. And on this side, you just are so full of yourself and so full of what you think life should be that you look down on other people. And at the root of both of these is an elevated self. So what does Jesus tell us in terms of the warning? Well, verse 1 says this. Don't judge or you too will be judged. Here's the warning. The warning is, is that you will be judged. He says, verse 2, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what does Jesus warn about? He warns us that sinful judgment will return on the one who's doing it. It's a righteous boomerang. You throw it out, and it comes right back at you. It's a taste of your own medicine, so to speak. Judgmental people receive in-kind judgment from God. So what does that mean? Well, first it means this, that there is no escaping God's judgment. Look at verse 2, or verse 1. He says, don't judge or you too will be judged. Some of you might think, well, that means if I don't judge, then I won't be judged at all. And that's not what this means at all. The Bible tells us that every person will have to stand before the judgment of God, believers and unbelievers. Now, the standard for that judgment is is different, but every one of us will have to give an account of our lives. Listen to Romans 14.10. Paul is addressing in Romans 14 that the the church needs to stop judging each other, and implicit in his argument for them to stop judging each other is the fact that every single one of them are going to have to stand before God and give an account. And here's what he says, this is Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or do you dis- why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself before God. Now, Romans 8 tells us that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, the basis of this judgment is different for believers or non-believers. But there's some of you who think that when you receive Jesus, you just get a scot-free pass of accountability for the rest of your life. Wrong. The Bible tells us that every idle word, every deed, everything that we've done will all be laid bare. The sins that we have committed, the the, the, the motivations of our heart that were impure, every sermon preached, every Sunday school lesson ever taught, every song, every song that's ever been sung, everything you've ever done under the umbrella of the name of Jesus, both good and the things you've done in your name that are bad are going to be laid bare and it's all going to be there and the perfect heart knower will be the one examining your work. Now at the end of that judgment, at the end of that judgment, you will agree with great joy with the hymn writer that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But hear me. There is a motivation for righteousness here. For us to lock our mouths and deal mercilessly with our hearts, because the heart knower knows why we're doing what we're doing, and he will judge everything, including those "Mm -hmm," sort of things that come out of our hearts. The second reason that this is important is that the judgment on judgmental people is unique and painful. Jesus says the same thing in two different ways. In verse 3, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, God takes the method and the rigidity that you used on others, and guess what he does? He uses it on you. So harsh people receive harsh judgment from God. I mean, think of this. This is a scary thought that an all-powerful, all-knowing God would use the unfair standards that you've created and placed upon other people and then He would use them on you as the standard. God would use my righteous standard to judge me? I don't want that. Because my righteous standard is informed by my sinfulness, my arrogance, my unfairness, my understanding of what's right and wrong all skewed. And to use that on me by an all-powerful, righteous God, that is a scary thing. So why does God do this? Third reason. God's aim here is to expose our hypocrisy. Why, why would he say this? Why would he talk this way? He, he uses our own judgment as a means of judgment on us in order to expose the utter foolishness and unfairness of our hypocritical judgments of other people. Come on. Getting a taste of your own medicine is humiliating. I mean, you all know what this is like. Folks in worship too, you know exactly what this is like. When you get a taste of your own medicine, it is humiliating. The way you treated other people and then they treat you that way, suddenly now it is absolutely humiliating. Every once in a while when Savannah is crying for something, I don't know if this is a recommended parental strategy that I'm about to share with you, but it's an honest one of how I deal with her every once in a while is that I'll give her a little taste of her own medicine. So she'll be in the car, for instance, and she'll be crying, Daddy, I want my blankly! And it starts to elevate her blanket. I want my blankly! Daddy! Daddy, I want my blankly! Daddy, Daddy! And and about this time I'm just like, Oh! oh." So then I, you know, the car stops, I find the blankly, and then I do this. Use your blankly, Savannah! Here it is! Here it is! Oh, did you need it so bad? Oh! And that creates a real awkward moment. <laughs> because she can't figure out why her tones are coming from adult dad. And invariably, her response is something like this. Dad. Dad. And what she's feeling in the inside is a level of good shame. Because she can see Her actions mirrored in me. So I'm giving her a taste of her own medicine. So, it's one thing when you're dealing with a blanket with a three-year-old. Imagine what it would be like to have God do that with the standards that you sinfully use to cast judgment on other people. Jesus uses this warning so that we will think twice about what we say what we think, and what we conclude about others. He wants us to realize that judgment is coming to all of us. And we would be foolish to think that God doesn't take note of our self-made, unfair, harsh standards. Or let me say this very bluntly. If you want to play God in this lifetime, just beware that one day the real God will make you play by your own rules. And good luck with that. That's what he's saying. Good luck with that standard that you use. Good luck with that tone that you use. Good luck with that merciless, graceless perspective that people got to measure up to you and they can never fall they can never be imperfect good luck with that because if that was projected back from god to you you would be in serious trouble and that's what jesus says so what solution does he offer his solution is judge yourself And, and to make this point even stronger, Jesus uses what I think is one of his best illustrations in all the Bible. I mean, I think this is Jesus at his creative best. In fact, this reminds me of a season in high school when we would learn this passage and somebody would say something that sounded a little bit judgmental. You know, like they said something judgmental to me and my favorite comeback was, oh, excuse me a minute. And I'd grow and I'd like pick something off someone's face. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, just grabbing the log out of your eye. You know, so, do you get that? So, what Jesus is using here is this analogy, this illustration, to make a point very, very clear. And what does he say? Well, the first thing is that Jesus wants us to understand that we have this tendency to not be aware of our own spiritual issues. And so he attacks our hypocritical lack of personal awareness. Look at verse 3. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? So this is this, this little piece of lint or this piece of wood in someone's eye. He says, And pay no attention to the plank or the log in your own eye. The word plank means a the supporting beam of a house it's the header over a door imagine a four by four post protruding out of the person's face and he attacks this hypocritical sense of personal awareness that jesus says you look at your brother and you see this speck in his eye and you don't realize that you can't see clearly because there's a four by four post sticking out of your forehead it's like a kid with his face full of spaghetti sauce looking at his dad and saying, Hey dad, you got something on your face over there. The idea is that you, as you go to see somebody else's need, walk over to them and you got this four by four post sticking out of your head and you go, Excuse me. And you can barely reach it because the four by four post is already hit him in the face. And you go, You got something on your, you got something on your face right there, right there. And you got this four by four post. And it's as though the person would say, But dude, you got this thing in your face. Take a look. And what Jesus wants us to realize is the utter ridiculousness of our thought that we can see clearly what's going on in someone else's life when we have this enormous beam. He wants us to see how easy it is for us to see the sins of other people while neglecting enormous problems in our own lives. We we have to admit that we tend to give ourselves a lot more grace than we give others. We excuse our behavior, have all sorts of justifications. we got like a bucket load of grace for ourselves. And then when it comes to our spouse or a friend or someone who's offended or hurt us, we got a teeny little, little Dixie cup of grace for them. And the reality is we know our own hearts. We're, yet we're quick to justify ourselves and condemn others. It ought to be the way around, but pride prevents it because we have this log protruding out of our face. Then the second thing that Jesus says is he attacks our hypocritical offer to help others. Look at what he says. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What Jesus shows here is what happens so often. And that is that we not only see the shortcomings of others more clearly, we think that they need more help than we do, and worse, that they need our help. So we got plank-carrying people pointing out specks of sawdust in other people's eyes, and as we go to try and help them, our plank hits them in the head as we say, here, let me help you with that. It's a ridiculous image of people who have no concept of how hypocritical they actually are and as a result, judgmental people are usually very busy because the world needs their help so they confront, they complain, they suggest they offer opinions, they provide assessment while never taking a careful look in the spiritual mirror so that ministry to others is really about their need to fix other people so they can become like them because at the end of the day, hypocritical people really believe that when everyone grows up they're going to look just like them hypocritical helpers love fixing people but they fail to see the damage that they do and the real problem is there is a log of their own sin obstructing their vision they can't see clearly and it makes them ineffective so jesus says take out the log of your own eye and then you will see clearly the speck that is in your brother's eye notice that jesus is not against helping don't walk away from here going okay so i just don't help anybody no You're supposed to help, but you have to help the right way. You have to help others after you deal with yourself first. So the solution is very apparent. We are to judge ourselves first. We are to know who we are. We're to know what we're really like. We're to have a healthy understanding of our own depravity. We're to come to grips with our own sinfulness. We are to see the log in our own eye. We are to be humble. Or we will never be able to correctly judge what's going on in the lives of others. And for that matter, we will never be helpful. So we have to judge ourselves. Here's what this means. It means that we have to begin with an understanding of our own spiritual need in Christ. Back to the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to die for sinners. That's the starting point of dealing with judgmentalism. Here's why. Because the ground by which I deal with my own issues is to realize I can't deal with this log in my eye on my own. I can't pull it out. I don't even know it's there. I won't be able to do anything about it. Unless I come to the foot of the cross and I say to Jesus, I can't fix me, please help and transform me. Unless that happens, there's no hope. And so the starting point of my dealing with judgmentalism is understanding that apart from Christ, I would be judgmental of everyone except myself. And the miracle of regeneration is suddenly everyone else's sin seems so small And yours seems so huge And you get on your knees and say God be merciful to me, a sinner That's regeneration When the Spirit opens your eyes And you know it's you and Jesus And that's it And when you start there And His grace then covers you And you're forgiven of your sin Suddenly now everything looks different So you have to come back to the cross Some of you grew up in judgmental homes and the reason why those homes were judgmental is because the cross wasn't there. It was about standards and what people thought and what the church said and absent in the conversation is what about Jesus? It also means we have to know the Word. Because the heart is deceitful. And hear me, you drift from this Word, you will drift from the plumb line that tells you what your heart is really like. You just spend a week, two weeks, without spending any time in the Word. You drift from church and no longer hear the proclamation of God's truth. I guarantee you, you will develop a hardened, judgmental heart. And you will find a million ways to justify your lack of spiritual vibrancy. This also means that we have to deal with judgmental thoughts and attitudes in our hearts quickly and mercilessly. Take this stuff seriously. Those thoughts will grow, they will fester, they will take root. You must deal with them decisively and mercilessly. On a practical level, when you're in the middle of a conflict with somebody else, the starting point is not by making a list of all the things they've done wrong against you. The starting point is you making a list of all the ways you have sinned. You will never be able to resolve conflict unless you get this passage right. You have to begin by asking God, what about me? You you can't help people change. You can't help kids change. You can't raise godly kids if you're judgmental. You'll just raise second generation hypocrites. You, you can't help a Sunday school class learn how to grow in Christ-likeness. You, you can't be a good small group leader. Only wounded healers have the right to heal. Only people who understand the cross, only people who know their sin have any credibility to be able to speak into the lives of other people. So this is why humble, God-seeking, Jesus-centered hearts are so critical. This also means that we have to stand up for what is right. I'm not calling you to be some weak-kneed, stand-for-nothing evangelical believer in the city of Indianapolis. I am calling you, when, when it's wrong, say it's wrong. But for the sake of the gospel, please be humble in how you do it. And acknowledge all the while that you have your own failures and your own limitations. And when someone points out a weakness or a fault in you, be grateful that God is exposing your specs and logs. Don't take that as a negative thing. Receive it with what it's intended to be, a helpful reminder of your need to grow. And remember that one day... One day we will all stand before the throne of Jesus, the Bema Seat. Everything will be settled at His feet, and the eternal heart-knower on that day will lay everything bare. Everything will be evident, everything will be plain and clear, and the ultimate heart-knower of everything will be your judge. And on that day you will be so glad you knew the reality of Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But please don't use that passage now as your motivation just to let your prideful heart go wherever you think it's going to go. So Jesus calls us to judge carefully, to see the difference between judgmentalism and discernment. College Park, the world has seen enough spiritual hypocrisy that's been couched in judgmentalism. We don't need any more of that. What we need are humble people who are saved by grace, transfixed by the glory of God, and amazed at God's love. People who see the reality of the needs of others very clearly because they know their own needs so profoundly. Somebody who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So please, please, judge carefully by judging yourself first. Please. Oh Lord, I pray that you would graciously and lovingly do spiritual surgery on our hearts today. That you'd birth from this body of believers some repenting, contemptuous, judgmental people. For some, Lord, it's been such a part of their DNA in the home, in the background, that it almost feels so natural. And I pray that today you would just bring them to the foot of the cross and remind them of how you have dealt so mercifully to them. Lord, I pray for strength in some of my brothers to be more candid when truth is on the line, but to be humble in how they talk. Lord, I pray that today you would launch from this place a group of people who are committed to the lordship of christ and know that one day they're going to have to give an account so help us to live for that day not with fear but with joy but also a sense of resolve that we could give a good account to the ultimate heart knower This is too important, too critical, and too urgent, and too many church body bags have been caused by the sin of judgmentalism. So, Lord, deal with our hearts and bring us back to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all, and all to you we owe. In Jesus' name.